You might have heard the saying in investing that you should sell when others are greedy and buy when others are fearful. That's a contrarian view. But how do you take the contrarian view without proverbially trying to catch the falling knife without being wrong. Well, there's somebody that we're going to sit down with today. That is that contrarian. Um, he has contrarian views and he is not um, ashamed to tell us where he thinks things are going. As a matter of fact, he has targets for the S&P 500, for the NASDAQ, for the Dow. Um, we're going to get into what's driving that underneath, where those are going. We're also going to dive into catalysts on gold, silver, um, what's driving those markets, why they've been dipping, why they're going back up again. Um, what you should be looking at to understand where they're going, and again, what his targets are for gold and silver. We're going to talk about oil. We'll talk about other commodities. Um, we'll talk about the bigger picture, like where things are really going, including uh, over the next couple of years, including the next decade. Um, are we going to see massive inflation? Are we going to see deflation? Is it going to be a big crash? And so on and so forth. Uh, we're going to dig into what he's looking at, why he thinks that, and where things are going. Uh, we'll talk about um, the potential melt-up, blow-off top scenario, um, how deep that could go, how long it lasts for, um, and so many other things. This is a great conversation. Second time I've had um, David the Contrarian on the channel. Um, you do not want to miss this. Let's go ahead and just jump right into it contrarian uh, he's the contrarian macro advisor um somebody that goes against the mainstream he's got a good voice and so i love to hear it so dave uh, welcome back to the channel again yeah glad to be back mark thank you yeah thanks dave um so yeah you are dave the contrarian um you know a lot of times uh, i guess the old the old saying people probably know is you know buy when there's blood in the street or um sell when others are greedy and buy when others are fearful so i think that's kind of the contrarian um kind of tell us about what you do and and why you have this contrarian uh, approach and kind of how that works sure um yeah i've been 48 years in the business and i'd say almost from the get-go i was contrarian um kind of learned pretty early on that uh you know, the consensus was not necessarily the rewarding side of things. And as I say, contrarian investing really means being uh, very contrary at both extremes. So when the market's near the top, everybody's bullish and you want to be opposite to that. When the market's uh, near bottom, everybody's pretty bearish and you want to start looking for opportunities. So in the middle, I'm not so contrarian. And I, I get a lot of pushback now because I'm talking about a melt up and being bullish and people go, yeah, you're, you know, you're with everybody else who's been bullish. Um, but it's, it's later on, as we get closer to the end of this, um, I'll get a lot of pushback for being bearish and people say, Hey, this thing has a long ways to go. So, um, you can't win as a contrarian. You're always kind of on the outside of people. And when you're, when you're contrarian say you're saying something that everybody else agrees with, uh, they want to know where your contrarianism is. So yeah, um, it's a tricky thing. But um, I would say right now, um, in the shorter term, you got a lot of people looking for an exit here. People talking about a top, uh, talking about Fed tightening. And so, um, you know, my melt-up call is in a lot of ways contrary, even though we're, you know, kind of in the ninth inning of, of a long bull market. Yeah, that's great. So for everybody listening, I want to dive through uh, several things, and we'll talk about some Fed policy. We're going to talk about inflation, which continues to keep going higher. Um, maybe the um, the indexes, you know, what's happening there, what we expect to happen. I, I want, I definitely want to talk about gold, silver. 
oil, talk about some political changes, things like that. So um, for everybody, stay tuned for all that. We'll get David's contrarian view on those things. But to your point, David, jumping back, um, you are the contrarian. And so to your point, like maybe right now you're kind of in consensus with everybody about this melt up, but I can say that you were calling it even when everybody was very, very bearish. Um, I'm just curious though, before we start diving into those individual topics. So um, how does it work being contrarian at the, at, at the ends, as you said, right? So like when everybody's bearish or bullish or bullish or bearish. And so, um, you know, there maybe a lot of people have heard like never try to catch a falling knife. So um, how do you be contrarian, but um, still like not try to catch that falling knife or like wait for that trend to kind of develop? Sure. Yeah. Uh, just keep in mind, I'm a strategist, so I'm forecasting. So I may be talking about, you know, the, the S&P going to 4,700 or higher. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm saying to people, you got to stay in or you should be bullish because I'm not, as a strategist, I can't provide advice. Everybody's mm. got to kind of figure out for themselves how nimble they want to be, how close to the edge they want to get. Um, but as a forecaster, I'm trying to tell you where I think the top is. So it's not necessarily an endorsement of what you do from here. It's more just saying, hey, the top's going to be 4,700 or higher. Um, yeah, we're yeah. at 4,200. Hey guys, let me just interrupt this interview real quick just to plug the show sponsor, and that is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi is doing amazing things in the Bitcoin finance space. As a matter of fact, they've cracked some really big news by bringing on the ex-CFTC um, chair, Chris Giancarlo, um, and they are one of the most transparent, most heavily regulated um, companies inside the United States, which gives me a lot of trust um, into what their services are. Now, I've recently did a video talking about how to retire off of Bitcoin. And you can do that by leveraging debt and interest against Bitcoin. And BlockFi is the the number one company in the United States or maybe in the world to go to and use. Um, they are leading the charge. They're paying interest on your Bitcoin if you park it with them, or you can borrow against it. Now, as I broke down in that video, you can borrow against your Bitcoin. And when you take debt against it, it's not taxable. It's not a taxable event. You can use that debt for anything that you want, including to live off of, to leverage up and buy more, or roll it into another asset. Um, you can do something like I've done recently, like sell some real estate, put that money into Bitcoin, now, as that Bitcoin price has risen, I'm able to borrow against it and go back and buy the same real estate or something similar. And I still own the Bitcoin and I also own the new asset as well. Lots of ways you can do this. Um, and BlockFi is the company that I recommend. Down in the description, I have a link that you can click on. If you choose to use that link, you can earn up to $250 in Bitcoin just for using that link. So check out BlockFi now. And that's a good point. So like um, in, in a melt up type scenario, when we go back and look at you know market rallies across um, yeah, we're yeah, at 4,200. And, and that's a good point. So like um, in, in a melt-up type scenario, when we go back and look at you know market rallies across multiple sectors, we can see that most of the growth that comes at that top part of that, that blow-off. But at the same time, it's also the most frothy. So you might see the most turbulent. So I guess to your point, you're like, well, I'm forecasting 4,700, but that doesn't mean there might not be 30% drawdowns like in, in that stage or something like that maybe. Yeah, and more, more importantly, I think is that, yeah, volatility can be very very great at the end because the slope's getting steeper. Um, but also, um, it's a case of what comes after the top, in my opinion, is going to be very big. So it's a risk reward thing where how, you know, nobody's going to call this thing perfectly. Nobody's, you know, certainly investors aren't going to be able to get in and get out exactly at the top and then play perfectly unless they're damn lucky. So it really comes down to you have to figure out for yourself 
how how close do I want to come to that? Um, we're in a fairly unique time because I think we're at the end of a 39-year bull market uh, and what I am calling a historic top that may stand for many decades. Mm -hmm. So that means the other side of this, where I'm calling for a global bust, is very high risk. So it, even though we're close in time, I think we're going to see the bust before the end of this year. We're going to see a top in the stock market be, you know, probably in the next few months. Um, even though we're close in time, the last leg of this could be, on, in, certainly in the NASDAQ, could be 25% or more. So, so you're in a kind of a unique time where, yes, time-wise, we're almost at the end, but return-wise, you know, a 25% return is what we'd normally see over a couple of years. So it, it's really people have to kind of figure that out for themselves, how, how close to the best they want to be and how, how much risk they want to take. Um, but understand that, yeah, when you're this late in the game, risks are high, returns can be high, but risks are also high, and you just have to balance the two. Yeah. So if we look at some, uh, well, for, first you said they may not return, so the market could blow off, um, crash, and then not return for a couple of decades. Uh, that's a pretty big statement, but it's this, this historical precedence to that. So we've seen the markets take 25 years to get back to previous all-time high. Um, you know, we've seen it take 15 years to get back to previous all time highs. So that's really not that um, big of a stretch when when you go back and look historically. But also looking historically, you can see like the 90s, the 90s Nasdaq boom, for example. I mean, that shot up 100 percent in the last 12 months, I think, something right. like that, or 200 percent in the last 18 months. So 25 percent isn't that uh, that big considering some of those historical numbers. Yeah, except that we've we've come from you know March of 2020, so we're already up 100 percent plus in the Nasdaq. Right. So that extra 25 is you know from that bottom is pretty steep, um, yeah. and and it could exceed you know my numbers for sure. The other side of this, where I say it's not going to return to the highs, that doesn't mean there won't be opportunities after the bust, after the bear market. Uh, we'll have a cyclical bull market following the bear market. It's just that it won't be back to higher highs. And as you know, uh, there's a mantra out there of, you know, stay invested because markets always go to new highs. Well, right. uh, that may not be true in the next couple of decades. Yeah. And <clears throat> looking back at that historically, I just don't know why you would want to sit through an 80% drawdown that takes 25 years to get back to its previous all-time high. Exactly. Um, I mean, most yeah. people... Even even younger people can't afford that. I mean, eighty percent drawdown. I mean, historically, it shows that, right? Eighty percent drawdown that takes twenty five years. Just, no, no, thank you, not for me. Yeah, keep in mind that we haven't had in the post World War II era, which is you know the last seventy or eighty years, we haven't had more. You know, I think uh, the two thousand eight nine sixty six percent drawdown was 60, the biggest yeah. we've had. So the last time we had an eighty percent drawdown was nineteen twenty nine. Um, so there's a lot of people who say that's not going to happen. You know, that's un, you know almost unprecedented. I just think we're at extremes here where I think that's the setup where that's the risk is that we're going to see a you know seventy to eighty percent decline. Yeah. Now, before we get into the, you know indexes and, and commodities and things like that, which which we will, um, the, it seems like the catalyst has been. I mean, it seems pretty apparent. I'm, I, I wonder if you agree, but has been obviously the Fed policy, right? I mean, they've eight trillion dollars been injected in the last twelve months or whatever, and in addition, um, you know, trillions of dollars more coming, you know, for infrastructure projects and um, 
And, and, and it seems to me there's no sign of stopping this. And it seems like we've really shifted from like 2008, which it seems like was kind of reactionary, like, oh, shoot, the market's dropped. Let's go ahead and start injecting money to where now they're like preemptively injecting money. Um, and so um, it seems like that's been driving it. Is that what you're seeing as the catalyst for all these things? And if so, like, I mean, how does that end up stopping? Are they going to stop injecting money? For sure. If you if you look, you know, if you superimpose the market on a chart of fiscal and monetary policy, it's the correlation is very strong. Um, so, uh, you know, since March 2020, there's no doubt that the driving element has been, you know, monetary policy in particular, and you know, coupled with the uh, the relief spending that we've seen in re in uh, response to the pandemic. So, so for sure, um, it's it's that that's driving things. But keep in mind, monetary policy then leads to something real. And so we're getting real changes in earnings, dramatic increase in earnings, real change in GDP. We're probably going to see the biggest GDP uh, year that we've had since, you know, for decades. Um, so is that the so biggest, the biggest, are, the biggest growth change in GDP? Yeah. yeah. Nominal GDP. Yeah. Right. And then real probably because inflation is still pretty low. Um, so, so those are real elements. I mean, people aren't just buying air and, you know, money's just sloshing around and they just go out and buy something that doesn't make sense. So there is some logic to it. Um, the problem is, um, that, that I don't believe that that can go on forever or that it can go on for a lot longer because I think we're starting to see the downside of printing so much money is inflation. And although we haven't in the last 30, 40 years had real problems with inflation. Um, it's starting to break out here from long-term downtrends. And the Fed is going to have their hands full, I think, as we move through this year. Um, that's, that's really the race here is between the fundamental improvements that are coming as, as a response to the, or in, in response to the monetary and fiscal um, policy and the inflation that that's going to cause that's going to ultimately, I think, tie the Fed's hands, force them to have to tighten. And the one thing that you can be sure of is if they do tighten, this market's up on stilts and it will, it will respond negatively to that. Yeah. I want to, uh, I want to dig into that a little bit more, but maybe we're going to, we're going to come back to that because the, the Fed maybe has some other tools that they can use to control inflation. Um, and uh, we'll come back to that. But before we do that, let's just jump into a couple of things that you've been tweeting about and talking about. Um, so follow David on Twitter if you're not already. He's, he throws a lot of this stuff out there. We'll make sure to link to it down below. Um, but some of the things, so if we, if, we, if we jump into stocks, so we have the, you know, the main three big stock indexes. Um, you've been saying that they're kind of in this consolidation pattern, um, which they kind of seem to be if you're, if you're looking at them. Um, but you think you know, the tech stocks, the growth stocks, et cetera, et cetera are still poised to make another run so maybe they're consolidating building up energy and getting ready for that next run is that what you're seeing and if so why yeah absolutely i think um if you look at particularly the fangs which were obviously the the real driving part of last year's run um they pretty much have gone sideways since the beginning of the year uh and you're just beginning to see them lift out of that consolidation um they haven't broken out to new highs in most cases but they are um, they've gone sideways, and I think that consolidation is pretty well over. What what happens is you have a big run, and then you consolidate. You can either correct 
uh, with big downside, or you can correct sideways for a period of time, correct overboughts, correct um, kind of the exuberance that everybody thinks they figured out, they wanna own those stocks. Once they become uh, non-performers, people start changing their mind on them, and that gives you another chance to have another leg up. Uh, and that's what I think we're on the verge of is that the FANGs, the tech stocks, NASDAQ, all have kind of been in, in a few month consolidation, in FANGs case longer than that. And I think they're beginning to show signs that they're gonna break out in the next month and have a, another leg up. Uh, so I think there's, uh, you know, what you normally see is that the things that got you there, the leadership that, that got you through this bull cycle, typically goes right to the end. And I think tech is going to lead right into the end. So you've had a lot of people in the last several months and particularly the last month or two calling the end of FANG and the end of NASDAQ and the end of tech saying, you know, they've had their day. Now they're going to get hit hard. Um, and I disagree. I think there's one more leg up in those before you get there. Um, and they will be hit hard in, in the bear market, but we're just not there yet. It seemed like the tech stocks really started to stumble when the rates started ticking back up again. And maybe because tech stocks are so, um, you know, debt dependent, you know, they need debt to continue to grow. Um, and it seemed like maybe that was causing them to start to stumble. Um, do you see that? Is that something that you're looking at and trying to compare against? And then, yeah, I mean actually, I actually don't think it's, it's um, that so much. And in fact, many of the, big tech stocks don't have, you know, they have pristine balance sheets. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of other sectors that have much more debt on their balance sheet. So it's not so much that as it is that tech tends to be, um, tends to be dominated by growth stocks. So with growth stocks, you're paying for long-term growth. Um, and, and if rates go up, you capitalize that growth at ever higher rates uh, means you're, you know, you're going to, penalize your returns. Um, so when rates go up, it tends to hurt growth stocks, whereas cyclical stocks, um, because rates are going up, because inflation is going up, cyclical stocks benefit from inflation pushing up um, returns. So it really was more a case of, yeah, the bond market um, got hit, interest rates went up. You know, We saw the 10-year go from 0.6 to 1.75 in a matter of months. Yep. And you can pretty much correlate that to when the fangs in particular, but tech in general, um, kind of started losing performance. And now, you know, you get up to 175, I was, I think, alone or pretty close to alone in calling for uh, rates to turn back down and calling for a 120 on the 10-year. We're about halfway through that move. And it's not coincidental that, you know, tech started lifting their lifting, uh their returns again or outperforming again in the last month as, as rates came down. So I think that continues here over the next month or two. Yeah. So the rate, the rates kind of continue to slide down and then the, the tech stocks continue to slide back up again. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the NASDAQ was kind of known as the tech uh, index, but now it seems like even the S and P is made up and kind of dominated by tech stocks as well. So um I guess then if, you, if you're looking at the tech growth stocks, I mean, and both of those indexes are kind of driven by those two asset classes or whatever, um, then that's why you consider or think those will continue higher. And if so, um, what are the kind of targets you're seeing there? 
Yeah, my my target on Nasdaq is seventeen thousand. So I think we're almost to the old highs here. Um, you know, selling off a little bit today, but we're we're not far off the old high of you know where we were a couple months ago. Um, and so you know, you're looking at probably close to twenty five percent upside from here. Um, the the S and P, I'm looking for forty seven hundred, and I've said before, it would not shock me to see five thousand. So um, you know, from here, it's probably 15%, but, you know, it could easily exceed that and you could see it up 20%. Um, and, and, and the Dow will, will participate. There's certainly tech in the Dow, but I'd also say as much as I think tech is resuming leadership, it doesn't mean the cyclicals are, are now all of a sudden going to rotate out of favor. Um, they've been consolidating for the last month. Um, but I think, um, they're likely to participate in the upside, just not quite as much as as the you know the fangs and the semiconductors and things like that. So I think we're going to see a fairly broad rally right into the top. You know, it's going to be a lot of groups. I, th I think um, financials will probably lag because rates are coming down. Um, and I've been fighting energy, as you know, <laughs> yeah. saying that they're due for a pullback here and they keep going higher. Yeah. So they, they may not pull back, but it looks to me like um, they're overdue for a pullback. They've been, you know, they've had a nice run here from uh, high 50s to over 70. So uh, oil has. So I, yeah. I would expect energy to probably lag a bit here, too. Not that they can't go up, but they won't go up as much. Yeah. So um, if we jump sectors, but staying on that trend, which is, uh, you know, you talked about the 10 year dropping or well, going up from 0.6 to 1.75 and then coming back down to 1.20. Um, it also seems that uh, corresponded exactly with gold's drop. Right. So uh, as soon as the gold as, as the rates started going up, gold started dropping down. Um, and really, it looked like it was maybe a combination of the real rates. Right. So the um, the, the rates minus the inflation. Um is that is that kind of the numbers that you're looking at for gold? And if so, like, what are you seeing there with gold? I know you're predicting gold and silver to still make a, another really good run higher. Um, are those the things that you're looking at or, or what else? Yeah, I, I think certainly rates have shown themselves to be a big factor in, in the metals and particularly in gold. Um, unfortunately, I think, or unfortunately, or it's just reality, the algos do an awful lot in, in the, you know, in the macro space. And if if they have a certain relationship that they think is important, it's gonna it's gonna play. So so they've had it almost as a knee jerk relationship that rates go up, gold goes down. Uh, rates go down, gold goes up. So I I think that's why it's corresponded so much. It's not always that tight a correlation, but with the algos out there having the money they push around, I think that's part of what this is. Um, I think as we move here, certainly the move down to 120 on the 10 year and probably 190, 195 on the 30 year um, should help gold and silver. Uh, so we'll get a big part of the lift, I think, towards, uh, you know, my target on gold is 2,500. So it's a big move from here and silver, maybe 45 or 50. Um, it won't all happen before we get to 120 on the 10 year. Um, I think, though, that once once you get a, a pretty significant move from here, then momentum kicks in. So it becomes not just interest rates. It becomes, you know, um, inflation's moving back up, um, you know, just the tape is pushing things. So I, I, I think. 
people who think it's all rates are going to be surprised because I don't think it's all interest rates. Yeah, um, I think it's uh, pretty evident to anybody who's paying attention at all that all these markets are so heavily manipulated. Um, but it just seems like the gold and silver market just to me seems like the most manipulated overall, um, not only because of the, you know, giant paper market versus physical um also the amount of spoofing and things that happen but but the lbma setting the price of gold on a phone call every day as well uh, how do you think those factors are like really play into that price of gold and silver moving yeah i'm i'm not one that that pushes the manipulation narrative spoofing is really dealing with pennies i mean it's the day-to-day -day stuff but it doesn't it's not what impacts whether gold goes up or down you know in its big moves um I, uh, it's certainly manipulation as part of markets. If you want to talk about trading desks, doing things and, you know, trying to play um, what they see as edges and things. Um, but I think people think manipulation, meaning the Fed's manipulating it or the banks are manipulating because they're, you know, they're short gold or what have you. Um, I'm not such a big believer in that, partly because we, we saw gold go from, $250 in 2001 to $1,900 in uh, 2011, so in a decade's time. And during that time, there was a lot of, you know, banks with the same positions they have now or in the same situations. So where was the manipulation holding gold down then? Um, you know, I, I just think it's an easy thing to argue, partly because of expectations on the part of investors. There are so many investors out there that want to believe in gold and want to believe that gold is going to take off and, you know, think that all this money printing is going to lead to hyperinflation, et cetera, that when gold doesn't move as fast as they think it should, all of a sudden they got to find something, you know, what's, what's going on here that's not real. So I think manipulation is way overstated. It's not that it doesn't happen or that it's not having an influence there. I also think we underestimate um, because there is um, so much retail interest and, and interest in general in the metals, they get overbought very quickly. The minute they lift their head, everybody runs in. And I think a lot of the movement where they disappoint people without, you know, with, with the fact that they get cut short is because there is so much speculation in them, people wanting them to go fast. So I, on Twitter, you'll see me say, you know, markets move when they're ready, not when you're ready. You know, right. it's, it's, yeah. you know, it's not always what you think it should do. It's, it's, you know, markets have lots of factors involved. Hey, sorry to interrupt this video. Just one more time. I'm not running Google ads. So it's actually way less interruption than I normally would have on a video. Um, and that's because it's sponsored by BlockFi. Um, they are opening up the world of Bitcoin and financial products, offering to pay you interest on your Bitcoin, um, better than owning a rental property that you have to manage and control and have the risks. You can just earn interest on it or you can leverage against it. Now, I plan to hold my Bitcoin forever and literally never sell my Bitcoin. So how do you do that? Well, if I need money, I don't want to sell that Bitcoin. I'm going to pay tax on it. All right. I'm going to end up with less and I don't have the Bitcoin anymore. So a better way to do it is to borrow against the Bitcoin. So I've put all my money into Bitcoin. If I want to buy a car or I want to buy a house, I can borrow against 
against it at very, very low competitive rates, get my house, get my car, whatever that may be, and get to keep the Bitcoin. Now, I've done a whole video on this. Uh, you can find it. I'll link it down in the description below, how to retire off of Bitcoin without paying taxes. And you can do that with BlockFi services. Um, I'll, I'll link to the video down below. I'm also going to put a link to BlockFi. If you choose to click on that link to check them out, you can earn up to $250 in free Bitcoin just for using that link. And that's it. Let's go ahead and get back to the interview. Yeah. You, you mentioned the 2008. So, you know, gold crashed along with stocks. I think what got down to 1450 or 1500-ish or something like that. Um, but it recovered really quickly. I think it took six, seven months to get back to its previous high as stocks took six, seven years. Um, but, you know, that seemed like it was a response to, um, you know, the, the, the $700 billion tarp bailout and then the QE that resumed after that. Um, and we saw maybe just, uh, you know, one or two trillion pushed it from 1500 to, to 1900. Um, now we have eight trillion. And so uh, we're, we're not even be able to get past to the high we set in uh, 2011 with, with one or $2 trillion printed. I mean, if, yeah, if wanna, gold was ever going to work, it should work now, right? Yeah, I want to correct one thing. The, the balance sheet's really only grown. Um, I you lose track of numbers, but we're up to $8 trillion. It, You know, It started in March 2020 at wherever we were, $3.5 trillion. So it's not up $8 trillion, it's up. Um, you know, four trillion probably. So that, that's a that's um, but, a blend of of fiscal and monetary. Oh, okay, yeah, but yeah. It, it, yeah, I, I mean, I think that money is going to have influence. I mean, it's certainly what's driving um, the inflation with a lag, and I do think we have more than transitory inflation here. So that's, I mean, that's my story in terms of the bust is that I think inflation does become a real problem later this year. And so a lot of this is also the lags. Monetary policy um, needs to move through to a point where it does drive the inflation. And we're getting to that inflection point, I think, where it's going to become problematic probably by the end of the summer. Yeah. So inflation is not transitory. <laughs> inflation uh, is here. I think so. <laughs> yeah. There's some of it is. I mean, for sure, the Fed's not just... Um, pushing out a narrative to to give them room to print i i think there really is some that is supply chain oriented and can go away uh once you know things get cleared up we really had a situation where for many years the industrial side of the economy worldwide was not the driving element it was the consumer and here in you know here in the last year and a half with with all the money that's been printed not just by the fed but by central banks around the world and everything going on, you know, in Europe and China and the US and Canada, Australia, et cetera, it's all come together to push out this, this huge demand for, for materials. And yet the materials companies had, had kind of ratcheted down their capacity because they never thought they were gonna see that kind of demand again. So right. we've had this big ramp up in demand and the companies are just not able to produce to meet that demand, that ramp up will at some point slow down and they can catch up somewhat. So, so I, that part of it is transitory, but ultimately I, I, you can label it transitory or, or whatever they want to. If inflation really starts to heat up even more um, by fall, I don't think Fed can just say, hey, we have, you know, we're just gonna bank on our faith that it's transitory. I think they're gonna have to react which means tightening. Okay. So let's, uh, let's, let's uh, add a little flavor onto this for a minute. So um, 
I know, you know, we talk about finance stuff and um, I get comments a lot if I dip into this, but like, I listen to you for finance. I don't want to listen to you about politics. Um, but you can't really understand one without the other, right? Because it's the political uh, initiatives that go in that seem to drive this. And so and we can see there's obviously like these, these, these political changes that are happening. Um, and so we can see there's this shift to uh, moving to more UBI. So we can see there's a shift of, uh, you know, the political movement kind of going to one side. So we're seeing, you know, more... ESG narratives that are, you know, wanting to kind of control and capture um, the way businesses work. And at the same time, a shift to, you know, more UBI money printing, more infrastructure printing and stuff like that. Um, and then, uh, so I'm curious how you look at those to affect your outlooks on things. So for example, um, in the United States and most of the developed world, there's this huge push to move to renewable cars, right? No more ice combustion engines. We want to move to renewables. So how does that affect oil? Um, your, your outlook on oil, I should say. And then also other assets, or I should say commodities like lithium or cobalt and things like that. Do you, do you take those things into consideration? Um, yes, definitely. I mean, but my, my feeling is on oil um, that we, you know, you have policy out there pushing a, a certain view. It's not realistic in terms of their time frame of when you're going to be able to produce enough energy from alternatives, et cetera, to meet the demand. So that means oil is not going away anytime soon. And in fact, because your policy is also um, trying to limit carbon fuels um, because you think they're evil or what have you or polluting, um, you're going to run into a situation where we're not going to have an, you know, a, we're going to have a tight supply demand situation. And as a result, it's going to, you know, the thing that gives when you have a very tight supply demand situation is price. So mm. that's part of my forecast out probably in 26, 27 is that we'll see $300 plus of oil. You know, and that's because uh, they've restricted the supply artificially by shutting it down, but the demand hasn't really gone away. And and the demand, because we're going to see, and I'm jumping ahead, but if we have a, a global bust, which I am forecasting, and I define a bust as something that's almost um, in many respects like a depression, but happens at the speed of a recession, if we have a global bust, you're going to see a response from monetary and fiscal authorities that's many times what we've seen in the last year and a half. So many times, that's a huge statement. I mean, we've we've seen something here that we've never seen before. If you then multiply that by several times, that will then spur big demand in the next cycle for you know the materials that we're seeing already are in short supply. So the next cycle, I think there's going to be huge, uh, not only supply issue but a big demand for that oil that's going to you know lead to something we've never seen to the degree we're going to see it in terms of a tight supply demand. Um, yeah. So, so yes, ESG plays a role in that because I think they're, frankly, I just think they're unrealistic about their expectations and it's only going to exacerbate what's coming. What we, we would have, you know, pretty, um, pretty big moves in all the commodities, no matter what, but I think ESG just exacerbates it. 
Yeah, well, I would agree with that statement that uh, it's unrealistic. It doesn't seem to stop them. So um, <laughs> my, my previous uh, state, California, you know, they've shut down the natural gas and the nuclear power plants to move to renewable. Well, the renewable isn't enough. Well, that doesn't seem to stop them. So now there's rolling blackouts. Um, so even though it's unrealistic and it's proven that it doesn't work, um, doesn't seem to stop them. I guess we're just okay being without power sometimes. Yeah, well, look what happened in Texas last winter. I right. mean, you know, we're, we're making some policy decisions that I think are based on theories and based on hopes rather than based on reality. And, the, you know, as a result, it's going to be, you know, it's gonna, there's going to be some pain as a result of some of these policies that we're making. Yeah. Um, what about some of this uh, great reset stuff? So um, by 2030, you'll own nothing, you'll be happy, which, of course, um, that's a big statement by the World Economic Forum. But then back to some of the stuff we're seeing now, maybe some of this stuff is playing out, which is limiting the amount of energy production, um, the amount of energy you can produce, uh, putting laws into place that limit that, um, how much energy can be used by businesses and people. Um, and then even maybe some of this stuff where BlackRock's buying up all the single family homes and people can't even buy them now, they have to be renters. Um, I guess that's a longer term view. I mean, is that stuff that you're looking at and thinking about like over a longer term lens? Um, yeah, I think it's all going to play out. I mean, I have to say my, I guess I, I kind of keep it simple, stupid from the standpoint of um, I think the global bust is going to be the biggest downturn we've had since the Great Depression. Um, and I think it's going to lead to um, huge monetary and fiscal response all around the globe. But before we get to that monetary fiscal response, we're going to have a, you know, a real financial crisis on our hands bigger than 2008-9. And again, this is global. Um, that then that then leads to um, you know the response, which then with a lag leads to another recovery cycle, but one with an entirely different focus because it's going to be pushed by fiscal spending, which means it's going to be infrastructure driven, and again not just in the U.S. but across the globe. So you're going to get into all of that, um, and I understand you know the view of a reset and that. We're going to collapse here and they're going to you know change to a, a different reserve currency or basket of currencies etc i just think it's premature to be expecting that now i i think the real time the the d-day for when all this stuff kind of um comes to a head is probably out late this decade early next decade um when you have as a result of a bus leading to much more policy expansion, um, meaning that you can have inflation going probably all the way back to where we were in the early 80s, meaning 15 to 20% inflation, 15 to 15% plus interest rates. And that's going to come in direct conflict with the need to finance all this debt that's being flooded on the system. I don't know how that happens. So I think it leads to a collapse. So I think the reset is forced upon us, not by the IMF, not, and it's not going to be a, just a U.S. situation. I think, I think the risk is that when we get to the 2030s, we're looking at a total worldwide economic collapse and financial collapse. And what comes out of that, um, my fear is the totalitarianism, um, but it's not this, I, I can tell you, I am not in the camp, I, I think it's silly, 
this um, idea that the sooner we have this collapse, the better, because then we can reset and go merrily on our way. Uh, not going to how it's going to happen. Right. We we are really in a crisis period um, for this country in particular because we were the you know the economic leader of the world, um, and that's going to have major impact on the rest of the world. And I I really do fear new world order. In my opinion, is code for a communist takeover of the world, and that seems to be the most likely direction we're going. Uh, and frankly, there's a lot of useful idiots in this country that are kind of thinking new world order is something good and they're going to maybe find out it's not not what they thought it was yeah definitely i agree with that uh, perspective i think it happens sooner than next decade but you know we'll see what that happens but um to your point you know about this moving to totalitarianism and the reason why i think this is important to understand um uh mark carney head of the boe came out uh, a couple days ago and he said that a quote climate emergency that threatens life on earth he claims requires rigid controls on personal freedom that's his quote right so it's a climate emergency so um in order to preserve life on earth it claim it requires rigid controls on personal freedom and what would those controls on personal freedom be consumption energy expenditure um, things like that, right? So, uh, no doubt, um, we're moving that direction because they're telling us we're moving that direction. He said it right here. The 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 sad part is, um, and again, I think a lot of people are useful idiots that don't know what they're doing. But I I also have to wonder when you hear it from a Mark Carney, who should know better, or you know, lots of our leaders in this country, you got to believe that. You know, again, there's there's a lot of people in on this thing, and I think they're crazy to want this. But you know, you, you can't you you can't explain logically evil, can you? Right. <laughs> I mean, and frankly, that's what I I do think. Um, that's what they want. They want to move us towards this one world government that's going to control our lives and and do all of that. I don't know why. I, I don't know why anybody that seen what we had in America would want to go a different direction. But all I can say is that seems to be the direction we're headed. And some of these people should know better. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, Mark Carney saying that is concerning, frankly, at this point, given what's happened in what I call super cycle that I define a super cycle as the, the big cycle is between two depressions. The last depression being the great depression of the thirties, the next depression, I believe, being the 2030s. And so we're in the last decade of, of a super cycle. In my opinion, this is all pretty much baked in the cake anyway. The, uh, you know, I, I, I am not a fan of the Biden administration or what they're doing. I'm not a fan of climate change because this redistribution of income is really what its motivation is. Um, and I'm saddened by to see how many people are kind of bamboozled by all that. Yeah. But um, but I think even even without them, this is almost it's so late in the game now you can't turn back. And and earlier on it wasn't driven by an agenda. Earlier on, it was just the natural process of moving from a, a system that came out of depression. People knew the lesson they learned in the depression, and you get so far removed from them, and now people think there's a free lunch. You know, let's right. let's have MMT. Let's just print money and and spend money because there's always a you know rates are low and they're always going to be low well no they aren't yeah 
Yeah, I mean, you get to a situation, you know, kind of like what the fourth turning talks about, where you have um, generations who have never produced. All they do is consume. So they're living off the production of generations before them. So they don't have a real world understanding. But yeah, they're the ones in academia and politics that are making the decisions. And so it's unfortunate, you know, what happens with that. But if we take that and then kind of take a couple steps backwards to where we were, so we'll kind of bring this back to full circle and then we'll wrap it up. But so if we understand that they have this um, need and uh, to push towards more control, uh, we can see this. I just told you, Mark Carney, I read his quote, they, they want that. Um, we can see that they're really driving this economy, right? So they're, 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 they want to print this infrastructure. They want to push money for renewables, push money to push this ESG narrative. Um, it's obviously crushing economies all over the world, but no problem. We'll print money for them as well. Um, so it seems like they really want to drive this. Now, you had talked about earlier about that's pushing inflation, um, but they may need to pull back on that money printer to, to, to stave off inflation. Um, but at the same time, if they do, the whole thing could fall apart. So they have other tools like yield curve control, for example, to, to suppress the rates. It could even go as bad as controlling prices to limit inflation. And we've seen countries already talking about that. We've even seen people in the United States talking about that. So um, I guess uh, in light of all that, um, do you think this, this, uh, this blow off top as you're projecting, right? This 80% drawdown that could happen, you know, in the next year or something, is that because um, they go till they blow, meaning they're full pedal to the metal printing as much money as they can, and it just stops working? Um, diminishing returns, or is it that they're like, wow, inflation is way too hot. We need to pull back. And it's more of like self-induced. Yeah. It's, it's really a case where I think they, you know, keep in mind as even though we're 40 plus years removed from the hyperinflation of the early eighties, it's been my observation. And I've been in this business in 73 that it was just amazing decade after decade, what happened to us in the early eighties that I lived through as an investor um, was still the conscience that kind of kept things under control for you know every cycle. The minute it lifted its head, people said, "Oh, inflation's coming back," and they got nervous, and then they'd find inflation wasn't coming back, and that you know went back till we ratcheted all the way down to pretty much zero. Um, and so now we're at a point that we haven't been at really in the last forty years where it's it's truly breaking out and it's not a fake out. And it's not one of these things where it was a, you know, a false call that inflation's a, a risk here. So they, but they still have that conscious, that the conscience that they do understand that, boy, we don't want to go back to those early 80 days and early 80s days. And, you know, we went in the late seventies from six or 7% inflation. And it was only took, Two to three years and we were at 20 percent inflation so they realized that if they let the genie out of the bottle it's not an easy game to get it back in so so i think that does have the as much as everybody's worried the fed's printing too much money and the fed's um talking about it's still a couple of years before they have to tighten etc um i think in the back of their mind they know it's closer than that number one and number two whether they know it or not they're gonna they're not gonna have a lot of tolerance for inflation <clears throat> pushing you know a lot higher. I think we're, if we see you know the numbers coming in month by month for the next several um, at the levels we've seen recently, they're gonna get 
nervous. So that's that's first and foremost that they will, I think, step in and tighten. And I think tightening is going to be probably more from the standpoint of money than interest rates. Everybody, most most of the street talks in terms of rates. I look at is money is much more important. I think they will drain the system of as much as a trillion dollars if they feel that inflation is breaking out here and not just transitory. Um, and then you bring in to the equation the fact that we had what we had in the last 15 months in terms of a pandemic that led to a worldwide shutdown of the economy and where as much as statistically we're seeing recovery, we still have a lot of landlords not getting collecting rent. We still have a lot of um, people not working. We still have, you know, a lot of people who are haven't haven't paid their mortgage in a year. You you don't just all of a sudden say, okay, the economy's recovered. I'm going to catch up on those 12 months I didn't pay. So you've got a lot of fragility in the system there and everywhere else. You know, there's the, so it's a funny situation. It's a really bifurcated situation where we have the potential for an economy that looks like it's the strongest in decades, um, but really below the surface is the most fragile it's been in a long, long time. So it means it doesn't have the tolerance for cranking down the system, you know, ratcheting down money or raising interest rates that it might have in other cycles. It means I think the Fed is gonna find that the response to their tightening with a very short lag is gonna be a lot larger than they anticipated. And I think, I think we're gonna, and again, I talk about the Fed, but it's really central banks around the world are gonna be in the same position. I think we're having a situation where the unwind is gonna hit us so fast and they're gonna, all the policymakers are gonna be deer in headlights going, what do we do? You know, they did a good job of responding to March of 2020, but this time around, I think they're gonna, they're gonna be going, what can we do now? We've already printed all that money. We've already done all this you know, fiscal stimulus, we got to be careful. We can't just do that again, but they're going to end up having to. It's just going to take them a little time to realize that they don't have a choice. Yep. Um, and by the way, I always say the difference between me and some of the guys you know out there that are the, you know, the guys that think we're on the way down now, this is the big one, um, you know, the Peter Schiff's of the world. The difference between those guys and me is that I do say there's one more recovery cycle. And the reason I can say that, and I've been saying it for a number of years, is in deflation, and that's what the bust, the global bust will be a global deflationary bust. We'll go from this inflation concern to very quickly the first deflationary downturn, I think, in since the Great Depression, um, widespread deflation. Um, so in deflation, central banks have almost infinite ability to print money. If this were a case where we had inflation, their hands would be more tied. They, you know, because more mo more money means more fuel on the fire, more more inflation. But if you're in deflation, the leads and lags to when that money brings you back to inflation and and a problematic inflation is long enough that they're going to be able to say we got to deal with the here and now. We've got on our hands right now major bank failures around the world. We have you know, involuntary debt liquidation across the globe. Um, we can't worry about inflation right now. We've got to worry about deflation. So that's why that money will then beget one more recovery cycle. Where you run into the problem is that one more recovery cycle 
then, then gives you hyperinflation. And you will have, unlike the 1980s, you will have hyperinflation with perhaps $400 trillion of debt. And you know, right now we're over 250. By the time we get done with this bus, we could be up at 350 to 400. Wow. You, you can't. I mean, there's no equation you can come up with to tell me how you solve that. Right. It just leads, it leads to a Ponzi scheme that just collapses. Yeah. Wow. Those are big numbers. That's a big picture. Um, and I guess with that, we could go ahead and wrap it up. That's uh, We're going to something like that. Um, we know they're going to keep printing. And uh, whether they go till they blow or they try to pull back and then try to step back on the gas again, um, unfortunately, there's only really one outcome of this. It seems like a deleveraging. So, yeah, The difference between you know, one scenario and the other is you know, a matter of five or seven years. It's, it's not like you know, one is go merrily along and the other one is, oh, no, we're in trouble. You know, they're, we end up in a bad place either way. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine um, you said you started your career in 1973. So that's uh, just two years after we started this whole, you know, fiat money system. I mean, whatever you could argue it started earlier, but really that's, you know, when we got off the gold standard. And so look how far we've come in 50 years. And so like to say that we could even go another five or seven seems like way too long. If we've gone this far in 50, I mean, imagine like where we're going. It's just unsustainable. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. It is unsustainable. Yeah. All right, David. Well, that was awesome. Um, thanks for giving us that contrarian view and, and really kind of helping us understand kind of where these markets and asset prices are going. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, I'm going to make sure, like I said, everyone follow David on, uh, um, on Twitter. I'm going to link to his profile down below. Anything else you want to call attention to, David? Um, no, other than uh, we talked about bonds, just understand that that moved down to say 120 on the bond market. Obviously, I don't know exactly where it's going, but if I'm pretty right on that, just understand that's not the end of the move up in rates. I do think as the Fed tightens later, you could see uh, 2.5% 10 year um, before this year is out. So, you know, the move down is just a short term move. And then I think as we tighten, rates move back up. And that's that's what becomes problematic for the stock market, along with the fact that they, they pull money out of the system. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, thanks for that information, David. And uh, thanks for your time. As always, it's a pleasure talking to you. I love the insights that you bring. Um, and with that, we're going to wrap it up. Okay, Mark. Hey, thanks, thanks for so. having me. All right, bye.